Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And my guest this week is a man who's described himself as something of a transatlantic mutt, a singer-songwriter who, pay attention now, started life in London with an Italian father and a half-German, half-Polish mother before moving to Lugano, a Swiss town near the Italian border, where he studied at an American school. Mm-hmm. I know. Now residing with his actress wife, Gemma Powell, and their three children in Oxfordshire, in June he's releasing his seventh album, which is rather splendid. It's called Europeana, and it's as good as he is. I can't wait to chat to Jack Savoretti. How are you, sir? Hello, I'm really good. You, you hit all the points right on the head there. I'm very impressed. <laughs> I know Lugano quite well. Um, because Get out I'm of friend- here, really? I do, yeah. And I, I love to swim in the lake there. Yeah. Um, so our, our days in Lugano would be we'd get up, we'd go for a swim in the lake, try not to absolutely... My son was quite tiny at the time and he used to absolutely, um, excuse my friend, shit himself every time a massive swan landed next to us. And I'd be going, oh, it's fine. It's whilst also terrified. Lakes are quite scary. Lake, like there's something... I'm, I'm a Mediterranean boy, so I find lakes quite scary too. It's not only the swans, it's the little like viper snakes that sort of go through. It's the fact you can't really... I didn't know about yeah. them. Oh yeah, you get... Also you get eels, like crazy oh. eels in the Lake of Lugano, electric eels. And it's the fact that you can't really see your feet when you look no. under like... It, it freaks me out. I'm, I'm, I'm not a huge, I mean, look, I grew up by the lake and I love it. And some of my greatest memories are there, but give me the Mediterranean any day. <laughs> well, I'm so glad you said that because actually my preference was once I'd done that in the morning, I'd say, come on, let's, let's jump on the boat and we'd go over to Italy for the afternoon. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. It is cool how you can do that. Oh my God. And then you'd be in these amazing Lido's sort yeah. of on the edge of town. Your kids are splashing around. You're having a lovely time. People are bringing you cappuccinos and you're thinking, <laughs> why would I be anywhere else? That is a question for you, Jack. Why are you here and not there? <laughs> I struggle with this a lot, uh, jokes apart. Um, my my location and where I've lived my, since my birth has never really been in my control. <laughs> um, very much so being my parents in the past. Um, and then my heart later on in the future, um, as ah. well as sort of other things. I I kind of came back to England for the weekend, and that was 15 years ago. Um, that was sort of one of those stories where 
after I finished high school, which was an American school, like you said, most of my my growing up, I was an American kid, even though I'm not an American. I'm English, Italian, mostly. Um, all of my friends were American. All of my cultural references were American. My education was American. My accent used to be much more American. So my sort of thing was, I'm going to America. So I moved to Los Angeles at about 17. And uh, it was too young, for sure, to move away to America because at 17 in America, if you're coming from Europe, you're treated like a 12-year-old. Um, well, not, yeah, you're still you're not legal for anything, really, are you? Except for like fighting, driving, yeah, <laughs> and, and joining the army. You can't really do anything else. Uh, and that was not my intention when I moved to Los Angeles. So I kind of, and it was also just post nine eleven. So America was in a little bit of a sort of identity crisis, and it was a strange place to be. It was also quite scary, to be honest. So I came back to London to visit my mother, um, and that's where I ended up starting music. Um, again, completely sort of not really in my own control. And then I met my wife, um, who is English. Um, and we just sort of, we haven't left. We've talked about it. We've been discussing this a lot recently as well, after experiencing what we did this year, where, you know, it's amazing how you can take for granted travel. Mm -hmm. And I've, I have a love and hate relationship with travel. Due to what I do, travel is is wonderful but it's also grueling and it can it's it can be soul destroying it can take you away from the people you love um and it can just be i can sometimes associate it with exhaustion hard work yeah. fa failure as well because just because you're traveling and trying to do it doesn't mean you're succeeding at it that's what sort of people don't always yeah it's not as glamorous as it looks like on the outside and it depends Instagram. entirely what budget you're traveling on when you're a exactly. musician <laughs> exactly there's traveling and there's traveling um, <laughs> And I can tell you, for most of my 15-year career, there hasn't been much of a budget for when we're traveling. <laughs> um, so I, I, I did question now. My, my kids are young. We've just had a, a new little, beautiful little girl. And I did think this could be a really interesting time to maybe to do that, to go and give my children that experience of really living somewhere. Because we travel. We travel as much as possible. I try to take them away also for long stints mm -hmm. rather than like go away for three days uh, or do lots of little trips in a year. I actually think it's better for my children at this age to not sort of have that, you know, so much traveling, but to really stay somewhere for a long period of time once a year. So that's what we do. Um, but I don't know. I, we don't have the, I, we haven't really made that big decision to go out and move somewhere. This is home now. So it's quite hard to leave. So home is Oxford, which um, is a beautiful is part of the country. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, gorgeous. it's stunning. It's very stunning. And what's beautiful about where we are, we're sort of on the border of the Cotswolds, kind of in the Cotswolds and now it's debatable. <laughs> um, but there's something very European about this area when it comes aesthetically um, in the sense that it's just got that you could be so many places within Europe mm. here, especially when it's sunny. Yeah. Um, when it's raining, you're definitely in Oxfordshire. But when it's sunny, <laughs> yeah. you could be in parts of France, you could be in parts of Italy, uh, or you could be in the beautiful Cotswolds. Like, it's got this kind of... And it's quite an international uh, group of people that live in this area, which is something I wasn't expecting when we moved out here. There is, like, a really creative hub of people that populate that area. So you're amongst your own, Jack. You've, you may have found your people. <laughs> well, <laughs> my tribe, um, the Cotswold Bunch. I think it's because anywhere beautiful attracts people that find inspiration in beauty. And most <laughs> people within any art form are inspired by beauty. I, I, I always very much, 
I, I thank my parents relentlessly for this because when we left London, I left London when I was about seven or eight and we did move to Switzerland. To begin with, it was really tough. I didn't speak the language. I got sort of shoved into an Italian school. It was very different, big culture shock. And then I moved to this American school, which really sort of did change my life in so many ways. And one of the fundamental ways it changed my life was where it was located. Because whereas my Italian school was located sort of downtown Lugano, which sounds a bit funny because Lugano isn't exactly a metropolis, but nevertheless, no. it, but it was downtown Lugano. It is a town. But this other school was at the top of a mountain and the views were unbelievable. And I think that had a big influence in changing my whole perspective on, on many things, including writing, poetry, art, photography, and just being surrounded by beautiful aesthetics and in a beautiful environment made me appreciate those things a lot more than I would have had I grown up in a city. You, I mean, you've never stopped as well. This is now your seventh album, Europeana, and the first track from it, I mean, you 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 must be sort of sat there going, I did it, I actually did it. I worked with <laughs> Nile Rogers. <laughs> Nile Rogers has worked with me because you two have collaborated on this. And I mean, as a musician, does it get any better? No, it really doesn't. Um, especially as a musician that's trying to make a point. And um, this record, I'm really trying to make a point. The whole reason, this is me trying to shine a light on how how beautifully connected Europe is and how beautifully connected it is through culture. Forget politics, forget economics, culturally speaking. As an English, Italian, German, Polish who grew up in Switzerland, I can tell you, culturally, <laughs> culturally speaking, we are so aligned and we are so, we can relate on so many levels that when you leave Europe, you necessarily can't do that. And I really wanted to celebrate that mm -hmm. and celebrate the music of Europe from Scandinavia all the way down to the Mediterranean and how it all kind of unites us. And somebody who had a big part of that was Nile Rogers, which sounds a bit weird, but in the late 60s, early 70s and up to the 80s, European culture and tradition of making music was quite, um, what's the word? There was, there was a long history of it. It was quite stuck in its ways. Beautiful, but stuck in its ways. Rock and roll started interfering with it, no doubt, in the 60s and all that. But what disco and funk did when it hit European shores, disco and funk and soul was something that was so underground, even in America. It was something you would only get in sort of gay nightclubs, um, a lot mm. of sort of African-American underground clubs. It wasn't mainstream. Chic and Nile, especially, they sort of really made it mainstream with Studio 54 and all of that. But then they, they made it universal and it crossed the ocean. And when it collided with the European culture of songwriting, of melody and melancholy and nostalgia, when these two worlds collided, we got the likes of Georgia Moroda. We got the likes of ABBA. Yeah. ABBA, you know, wouldn't exist without that. Julio Iglesias and Serge Gansberg was hugely influenced by disco music and, and, and how that music came over. But, but it changed when it hit European shores. And I had this chat with Nile when I first approached him because I wanted him to understand why I was asking him. It wasn't just because he makes everything sound cool, but he was a big cat. He was sort of like the godfather of the shift in European music. And he told me this great anecdote where he goes, man, I remember hearing my song for the first time at Studio 54 because they weren't letting me into the club. And we could hear our, our song playing in the club. Finally, I got inside and we were so excited that the song that we had played over and over again in these underground clubs was suddenly mainstream. He said, but then I came to Europe when we were really successful. I got taken over to Europe 
and I heard our music in the south of France, and it sounded different, man. It just sounded different. And I love that. I love that's kind of where Europeana comes in. It's taking this underground sound, but then giving it the beauty of the Mediterranean, of European aspirations, which is glamour, which is fun, which is romantic, which is sexy. Mm. And those two worlds colliding create what I call Europeana. But also you've got Niall, not only has he disrupted and reconfigured what Europe consumes by way of music, but he's also then spent decades touring Europe as it goes through, you know, untold change and shifts yeah. culturally. So I would imagine, and you uh, caveat all of that with the fact that he's a genius and a lovely man. What a joy to be able to have him as your sort of wingman on this. Well, he became a bit of a mentor in like a really short period of time. We've never been in the same room as each other. We've only spoken no. like you and I are speaking. No, well, because it's been COVID and he wasn't very well. Um, because of lockdown, he wasn't very well. So there was a, he was supposed to travel. I was actually supposed to be opening up for some of their shows that they were going to do. Uh, there was also talk of a Diana Ross tour, oh. which he was, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> uh, but, that, that, but that all kind of fell through because of, you know, the, what we've just all, what we've lived through. Um, so we've only spoken like this, but in a way it's been kind of magical because like what's happening now, so much of this actually cuts a lot of small talk. This new way of communicating, funnily enough, makes people really sort of get straight to the point and down to it much quicker than maybe if you meet face to face and there is a sort of making each other physically feel comfortable before you start engaging, which I do miss. I miss that. Don't get me wrong. But there is something magic about this sort of straight, straight face to face talking one on one conversation. And he's been a real mentor. He's been there's been many times I've thought, is this mad now? Is this a crazy concept? Is everybody just going to think that I'm trying to, you know, rehatch old glories of European music? And he was like, absolutely not, man. He's like, go for it. I'm with he's like, I'm on I'm on your side. So just knowing that he's on the pitch with you. Makes you play with a lot more confidence, yeah. Yeah. And who made the first move? Did you approach him? Me? Well, well, I say it was me. I, I should actually give the credit to Mark Ralph, who's, who I wrote this song with, who's an amazing producer, who didn't produce my album. We just did this song together because my album was done by another genius, Cam Blackwood. But Mark and I have this relationship where when we write together, we do everything then and there. And I can't tell you how many times I've said in a studio... We should put some Nile Rogers style guitar here. <laughs> I can't. I can't tell you how many times I've attempted to do it and butchered it. Um, but I said exactly that to Mark, and Mark said, "Why don't we just ask Nile? I'm sure he'd he'd be interested in it." And Mark knew Nile, reached out to Nile. But when we reached out, I really wanted him to understand the whole concept behind this album, so that it wasn't just me asking him. I wanted him to realize that I was asking him because he is a big reason as to why music in Europe, let alone Europe all over the world, but especially Europe, really changed. Yeah, I, I don't suppose many people have approached him with that sort of thesis, that sort of mental essay that you'd compiled. <laughs> that's quite something. True, that's probably true. Yeah. <laughs> he might have been overwhelmed that he just said, all right, I'll do it just so this guy shuts up. Well, and, but he's so affable, right? I, I'm, a couple of, not last year, year before, I mean, let's just pretend that last year never actually happened. Yeah. But I happened to be at an event with him in Southampton, right? And he gets called up to do something. And he says to me, he's, he's kind of caught up on his phone. He's got these kind of people around him. And they call him up on stage to do something. And he said, will you hold my phone? And I go, yeah, of course. Right? And he's doing a live on Instagram. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> so I just stood there like, hi. <laughs> I'm Kate from the UK. 
Niles, new friend. It was one of the most surreal. But he has this incredible familiarity about him. Um, yeah, but the, he which does. is but he kind of plays with like I think he has it because I, because of who he is and he's such an iconic figure um, physically as well as musically. You see him and he's an icon. He's just beautiful and you just you know that's now Rogers. You know he's very iconic in his way of presenting himself and the way he speaks and the sound of his voice. Even even though he wasn't a singer, the sound of his voice is as famous now as his playing. And he, yeah. I think he's so used to people approaching him with familiarity because we've all grown up we've all had him be the soundtrack of our lives that he sort of switches it on too very mm -hmm. quickly and it's amazing how comfortable he can make you feel i mean you you're, what you've just said is an example of that so. yeah and he was up there for ages and i'm going to people <laughs> <laughs> but also he can talk i mean i did his podcast and it was basically me interviewing him uh because he just has so many great anecdotes too he has so many great stories that after he would tell his story, I really had nothing to say. I was like, <laughs> I, I can't, I can't match that now. I really can't. Yeah. Now this brings me to my questions uh, for you because I actually, you know, with some some guests on this podcast, I, I, you know, I spend a long time thinking of three questions. For you, I had about ten, <laughs> and that doesn't often happen these days because most of the things that I've I wanted to talk to you about come from things that you've said previously. Mm. Um. And the first one is is about what I would call your hard-fought success. And you call it the slow burn. Describe it as the best thing that ever happened to you. And I think there's a massive real-life lesson in that. In an age where we want everything yesterday, we're so impatient, you know. We, we can't even watch content that's more than a minute long because, you know, we might get bored. And yeah, I wondered, totally. when did you become okay with having to, to work long and hard and where else has that patience proved to be good for you i don't know if it's patience necessarily i think it's um it's it's having a an understanding and an appreciation for what you can do what you can't do and what you want to do because when you start out a lot of that is quite fantasy it's, it's fantasy based it's fantasy driven it's naive for me at least it was very naive so when i started out I kind of took for granted, I, I would have definitely taken for granted success, 100%. Um, I would not have given it the respect I give it today. Mm. And I think that is the best thing about failing in general. Um, I, the only advice I ever give my kids is fail as quick as you can. Forget about winning, fail as quick as you can, and don't worry about the rest. Because even if you win without failure, you're probably not going to cherish it the same way you will if you haven't failed first. I, I don't think you do cherish a win as much as a fail. And, and a fail becomes a lesson as long as you learn from it, right? Totally. As long as you learn from it and take responsibility for it as well. Mm. And that was something where early on in my career, I could have easily have felt victimized or felt like, you know, certain people were up against me or certain things were up against me. But all of those things that I was finding, I was the one, you know, putting myself in that situation. So I was the one who could take myself out of that situation and change it, which is exactly what I did. I mean, I, I literally, you know, wanted to slam the door on the face of the whole music industry because they kept slamming the door in my face. And then I just realized, well, why do I keep standing in the doorway? Like, maybe I should just go, maybe I should just, you know, this is, I'm inviting these door slams what if i just keep the music and war and not worry so much about an industry that obviously doesn't want or a party whatever you want to call it or a business or whatever thing that doesn't necessarily want anything to do with me or to be fair i don't really know anything about either so i think the good thing about for me failing early was 
it gave me something to fight for, which that's not why I got into music. I didn't get, or, or, or it's not why I thought I got into music. Um, I got on into music because it was for me, I mean, as naively as early on, it was something that made my mother happy. It was something that made me happy. It was something that made my friends happy. It was, it was a killing two birds with one stone kind of magic trick. I could really engage with how I was feeling. I could really express how I was feeling without feeling too exposed because I was protected by the music. But not only that, people I was sharing that with were getting something out of it, even if they didn't like it. I mean, if they loved it, it was amazing. But if they, even if they didn't, at least I had gotten something out. But then because of failure, I found the importance of that. I realized that there is a value to that. It wasn't just about how it made me feel or how it made other, like this, there was something bigger to be had from this. And I never would have understood that or valued it had I not failed early on. So when you say failed, actually, you kind of stood your ground. So I don't know that that's failing. I mean, at 20, you had yeah. pretty, pretty punchy representation by way of management who, um, who put you in front of the biggest players in the industry. And there was the kind of, oh, here's the next big thing going on uh, around you. So that kind of buzz um, lived around you for a while. But in the end, you decided to step away from that path because it wasn't the music you wanted to make. Now, if you had walked that path, who's to say that you would be selling out Wembley Arena now? You know, <laughs> because that's where it's got you to. But equally, I'm sure you could have lived without all of the legal ramifications. And what, what must have been a very dark and lonely time when it's you versus a lot of people with deep pockets and big connections? Absolutely. It's terrifying. It was a real education into the legal system. Mm. Um, that's for sure. And it was a real education. I think it's not so much about if I would have, wouldn't have got to Wembley. It's the fact that when I got, when we did get to Wembley, everybody on that stage and everybody in my crew and everyone in my team, we knew exactly why we got there. Everybody, 99% of people on that team have been with me for over six to seven years. So nobody knew, nobody felt like we were lucky. Nobody, I mean, don't get me wrong. There is a lot of luck involved, even though you work hard. You know what I mean? Um, just getting the opportunity to work hard is lucky. But then yeah. you've got to actually work at it, you know? And so, you know, things might have happened. Um, people I worked with at the beginning were very good at their job. Don't get me wrong. It's not that they were bad at their job. They just were doing a job that I didn't want anything to do with, or they were doing it in a way that I couldn't fulfill or had no desire to, to play along with. So it was more about understanding and knowing why you get somewhere rather than getting there, it, yeah. rather than actually getting to the place itself and being able to look at yourself when you do get there and go, well, I'll be damned <laughs> because that's how I felt. Like I, the, I'll never forget speaking of Wembley um, because yesterday was actually the two year anniversary of that. And a part of me was like, oh, we shouldn't really be reliving that. But then I was like, wait, I should be celebrating that every year for the rest of my life. Yeah, that's my next birthday. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'd rather have exactly. that than a birthday, wouldn't you? <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's um, your Wembley but, birthday. <laughs> it's my Wembley. <laughs> I'm going to make that a thing in my house. Do it. <laughs> make the kids make a cake for my Wembley birthday every <laughs> year. <laughs> and Gemma little... has to get you a gift. <laughs> and then you all have to sit down and watch the show again. <laughs> every year. Like uh, <laughs> a family home video. I mean, it's it's kind of like that already, to be honest. <laughs> um, but I remember before walking on stage, thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to get, like, this is kind of the limit. We're going to get caught out here. 
because we know how to do theaters. We, we've been doing this long enough to know how to do something, but I've never, that was my first ever arena. I mean, I've opened up for many bands in many arenas, but you know, you're the guy with the small setup at the front of the stage while everybody's yeah, having drinks. It's not the same. It's not the same walking out to your own theme tune. You've got your name on a drum. You, That's yeah, about exactly. it, right? Yeah. Exactly. If that, it's very different when you're the headliner. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, it really is. And I remember thinking, you know what, if this is the end of the road, well, I'll, you know, we, hell yeah. This, this is a great way to go out, a great way to bow out. And instead I walked out and I knew the crowd. And I know that sounds weird. I don't mean like it was my mom and my friends, you know, 6,000 friends or however many thousand people it is. I knew the people. Like I knew this crowd because this crowd has grown with us. We've been on the road for 15 years when a lot of people didn't really give it much time of day, which is fair enough. But we built it really on the road, which was never my intention. I didn't set out to be a touring musician. Actually, if you'd asked me 15 years ago, that was probably the last thing I <laughs> really wanted to do. Don't you think that that's where you get really, really rich and firm foundations? Totally. You can, so you can go and do an album like Europeana now, which is a different sound exactly. entirely because you've earned their respect. And even if this one's not for them, and I'm not saying it's not, it's brilliant, by the way. I know um, exactly what you mean. They'll, stick, they'll, they'll still come to the shows. They'll give it the time of day. They'll give it the benefit of the doubt. And that's yeah. why I feel my response. And I think... It's because if you build a fan base like that, as an artist, you feel really free. You feel really excited about making another album. I don't feel pressure because I didn't have that one hit or that was, or, or any hit for that matter. <laughs> because I've never had that hit single or that thing there. I don't have this pressure of, oh, the fans want this. I feel like actually I have to show them what else we can do or what else we can give them that maybe like almost show them something that maybe they were they weren't looking at, you know, yeah. show, show them the beauty and some because that's what we did with the last record. It was a real love letter to Italian music, um, to Italian cinema and and, you know, to the point where we went to Rome to make it. And I had something interesting happen on the last tour. We had five wedding proposals on, on, on our last tour for, for the last album. And I would ask all these guys, like, why here? Why tonight? Because I would meet all the couples either before or after the show. Ah. And most of the guys said, oh, because this is her favorite song. This is she. They like you. Or we met. Da, da, da. But two guys said something really cool. They were like, we wanted to go to Rome, but we couldn't afford it. So we came here. Or I wanted to take her to Paris, but it was too difficult. So I brought her to a Jack Savaretti show. And that was <laughs> the coolest thing anybody's ever told me is that there was like an experience that was happening that these guys for an hour and a half felt like they had been to Rome or felt like they'd been to Paris. And that made me really excited about it. It's not just about the song or whatever. It's about the whole experience. experience. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's magic. So that's what we're trying to do with the yeah. next record. <laughs> Hopefully now, I mean, I really hope that you can feel that you are reaping the fruits of all of your labor, you know, all these years of investing in what, you know, many would consider to be, I'm sure you've played every venue, every toilet. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Falling asleep with your nose against the glass of every shit tour bus. Um, yeah. But that's kind of, you know, but I'm sure that for so, for so many years, Nile Rogers would tell you he did exactly the same. You know? All my heroes did. And that's kind of, that's where I do believe in the power also the subconscious, because I think in the back of my head, this is exactly how I would have loved to have done it. But I think when I was younger, I was terrified that I wouldn't have been able to do it the way I actually ended up doing it. So I would have easily taken the quick, cheap win. Um, and I, 
I didn't win. I, I went to the table, I rolled the dice and I, it, it didn't end up, there was no jack. It didn't work. So I actually ended up having to do how I always really deeply wanted to do it. I mm. didn't really have a choice. Um, and that's the beauty of failure again, because I could have very much quickly realized then, you know what, this actually isn't for me. <laughs> I want to do something else. Instead, I realized how much I really wanted to do this. Um, and I, I think I would have missed that had I succeeded quickly. I wouldn't have really understood how much I want to do it. It's not what I want from it. I still don't know what I want from this. I just know that I have to do it. I really love doing it. Oh, well, I hope you never find out what you want from it. Me too. There's, there's a full stop, right? And he I wants totally a full agree. stop. Totally agree. 100% yeah. agree. <laughs> Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. My next question to you, again, comes from a really wise observation you made. Um, <laughs> I know, I'm making you sound so good, Jack. I'm very curious as to see you. You, you need to play this podcast to your wife, your children. You're coming out of this really well. Yeah. After they watch the Wembley birthday, then they have to totally. listen you to can, this. Every, every birthday, you can get the, the podcast out as well. Once you've seen the show. <laughs> You've talked in the past about the difference between the way you write songs with a guitar versus the way you write on a piano. And I've never given this a huge amount of thought, but you described the, the guitar as like a very much a, a, a hunched experience. And the other, when you're writing on the piano, is like you are presenting the music to the piano. And I wondered if there was any other examples you could give me where you found a prop or a tool has transformed what you're doing and how you are in a situation. Oh, for sure. I mean, any piece of clothing you wear can transform it. You true, know, the way true. I, I did this thing with my, with my band. Uh, this, is a, this is a lesson we got from touring. I noticed that whenever we went into the studio and made records and all like that, my guys would walk in and they would be, I don't want to say just them because that sounds terrible, but they would walk in just them. And those are the guys I, I hung out with backstage. Those are the guys I hung out with at the pub. Those are the guys I knew. That's how they would show up to studios. And then I remember when we started touring a lot, especially singing to strangers, I started asking the guys to dress a certain way to just like make an effort when you go on stage. There was no uniform. There was no nothing, but dress as if you're going out tonight. Like you're going out and you and you want to make a good impression. And they started, they did that. 
And what I saw happen on stage was I saw it wasn't the same guy backstage. It was this, it, these guys just became something unreal and wonderful and almost untouchable. Mm -hmm. They walked out dressed to the nines and they played differently. They acted differently. And there was amongst each other, our respect for one another just went up. It was really strange. Wow. Uh, you know. And actually, when you think about all those, those bands that came out of Motown and even Chic and you know, James Brown, the way they all dress. Exactly. It's uniform, isn't it? It is a uniform. Exactly. And and that's and it's funny because so much of our time we've spent looking at old record sleeves and discussing how cool Chet Baker looks um, and how cool Miles Davis, because these guys used to dress to go to work. Mm. That's It was a job. It was a job that you had to get rid of. You couldn't show up to a session with Quincy Jones in your flip-flops and jeans and a T-shirt. That wouldn't happen. You wore your best suit, your best hat, you know, and there's a reason why Frank Sinatra showed up to Capitol Studios looking like that, because it was a job. So when I suddenly saw that with my guys, I made it a rule on the last album and on this album, you show up to studio like you would show up on stage. When I say a rule, it's not like it was indoctrinated into them. I just said, guy, like, you know, chatting about it. They all agreed to it. They were all like, absolutely, let's do it. And it changed the way we were. It, it, it was like a prop. It changed the way we behaved in the studio. Big time. Um, everybody treated the studio, let alone each other, with much more respect. And I think you hear that in the music, in the sense it made it more dignified. And when I say more dignified, I don't mean pompous. It just made it more confident. Everybody was just sort of, um, they were more confident within themselves. The same way when you put on a great suit or a great jacket or a great outfit, it does make you feel good for that, mm. mom for that moment. Um, and so... Yeah, in that respect, I can safely say I've used how we present ourselves when we go to work now has definitely become a prop when it comes to the music. It does affect the music. I really do believe that. And do you apply that same rule to yourself now when you're writing, for example? No, <laughs> definitely not when I'm writing. <laughs> well, no, because writing isn't about performing. Um, there's, a, there's a different thing. Writing is like, it's like looking for treasure. So it's sort of like you're out in the field. I wouldn't wear a suit when I was digging for treasure, but I like to wear a suit when I show the world what I found, you know, okay. when you're presenting it. So when you're songwriting, you really are like, you know, put actually the opposite. Put on your worst, you know, you're going to dig deep here. You're going to see some pretty scary stuff while you're looking in there. Um, so so it, that's, that, that is more about comfort and, and get ready to get dirty, basically. Um, whereas once you found the treasure, before you present it to the world, you know, wipe it, wipe yourself off, get nicely dressed and show the world what you found. Yeah. That's how I see run, it. Run a comb through your hair. That exactly. Kind of thing. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> take, take a shower. <laughs> take a shower. Um, just, I'm curious, the guitar versus the piano, which is your preference mm. and how do they differ in terms of writing? I definitely don't have a preference, but right now I've been obsessed with the piano. Um, because I think it's because of what you just said before, which was something I did say in the past. I forgot about it was, a, was about when you write with a guitar, it's quite introvert for me. Um, because yeah. you, you, most of the time you're, you're hunched over this thing. It's very inward. It kind of, whereas, like I said, you know, I always say to people, just when you sit at a piano, even if you're crap at playing the piano, you kind of flick your jacket back as if you're about to play yeah. Beethoven, you know, it kind of gives you that thing to sort of, the, it commands respect, the piano, as, yeah. a, as, a, as a thing. And therefore, you write 
outwards. You're writing to, uh, you're right. You're almost yeah. to the piano. And that's the kind of music I really want to make right now. I've, I, I'm, this is cyclical, you know, I'm sure there'll be a time in my life yeah. where I'll go back to being inwards. But right now I want to open my arms out and, and sort of sh show the songs I find. Um, yeah. So I think the piano right now has been really, really fun for me. There's something wonderful with the piano where, um, I call it like the magic, the, the, the right hand can go for like a little walk and find melodies that I don't have in my head and heart. Um, and I sometimes literally just close my eyes and even if it's going to be absolute rubbish, just let it sort of go for a walk and see what it finds. And it can be really liberating because you can find something, even something quite cliche or whatever, but it, it's something that it wouldn't necessarily be in my head. So I like that. My final question to you <laughs> um, is, is based around your last album, Singing to Strangers. Yeah. And I was blown away to discover that this was the first time that you really had written what, what I would call, you know, an album about love and romance. You hadn't really gone there before in terms of that. And that, that was like six albums in. So why so reluctant? And more importantly, can you recall what you consider to be your finest hour as a romantic? Remember, your wife will probably listen. <laughs> okay, so let me just think about both of those questions because there's two questions there. Um, yeah. <laughs> so the first one is, I did write about romance. I did write, you know, to, by the way, when I say romance, like, there's a lot of love songs on the radio, but I don't think many of them are romantic. So a romantic song doesn't necessarily mean a love song. Um, it's a real sort of atmospheric ambiance. I hate that word, but I'm going to use it. It's an ambiance kind of thing. It's a feeling. Ro romanticness is like a it's it's a it's a concept sort of thing. Um, I just don't think I was as open to the idea as I was on my last record. My last record was the first record. What I was trying to say there, where I deliberately opened my arms and said, "I love you." It was one of those yeah. moments. Whereas in the past. I probably said, I love you. It was kind of like looking somewhere else. Yeah. Or like, you know, it, was, it was one of those. You're right. You're right. You're, you're, you're right. right. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It was more like that. It was... Like it, the gruntings of a teenage boy. Yeah. 100%. Because it was so caught up in all this angst and me against the world, kind of, you know, as everybody in their 20s has, you know. There was a lot of... I wouldn't call it anger, but there was definitely a lot of like gusto of you know clenched fists there was a lot of clenched fists in my first albums like why doesn't anybody get this why doesn't you know a lot of frustration um to be honest yeah whereas in singing to strangers that was the first time i wrote a record where i kind of surrendered to it and was was life is beautiful kind of moment of you know what well, what have i got to complain about this is amazing um and so and that's carried on on this album. This album hasn't stopped. This album now, not only have I got my arms open, but I'm actually dancing along. Like it's yeah. even, I'm actually celebrating. You've really celebrating. gone there. I've really you're gone drunk there. In, you're, you're drunk in love, aren't you? Exactly. It's a little bit, I'm the guy standing on the table embarrassing everybody on this album. Yeah, breaking all the glasses. In terms of your romantic um, self and your finest hours of romantic, um, let's start at base level. When you met your wife, you got her fired. So you've got a long mountain to climb here. You've done, Is that your, right? you've done your research. Well, you did, yeah. yeah. I, well, I got her fired. 
<laughs> she got fired because she came to look for me in the studio where I was working um, in a place in Parsons Green. There's this sort of, there's this famous pub called the White Horse in Parsons Green. And opposite, yeah. there's this row of studios where a lot of fantastic sort of small studios are there, like songwriters and stuff. So I was working there with a, with a wonderful songwriter called Steve Booker. This was like 15 years ago. <laughs> Crazy. Um, anyway, I went to, when I met my wife, um, we got like in an argument the first night we met because it was this magic night and all this and this and that. And then she sort of revealed at midnight she had a boyfriend, which just what? complete. Yeah, nothing happened. Nothing happened. But it was just like there was this electricity. The minute she walked in, it was one of those really, it was definitely love. Were you on a date? Sure. No. Were you on a date? No, oh, no. no. Oh, okay. No, well, no, fair no. enough if she's got a boyfriend. No, exactly. She's done nothing exactly. wrong. Yeah. No, 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 nobody had done anything wrong. No, it was all good. But I was just like, I couldn't believe it. This person where we had had this in immediate spark, you know, we'd spoken for about six. We'd met at a birthday party and at like eight at night and at two o'clock in the morning, we were still just chatting away to each other. It was it was it was magic. And then she sort of says, I've got to go now. I'm going back home to my boyfriend. Which destroyed me. Anyway, she, she, <laughs> she, so so I went off in a sulk, uh, as one does, and um, I and I couldn't. All I knew was her name and where she worked. I didn't have her phone number. I didn't have anything. And she worked at this restaurant called Gillies, which was this like fish bar in Fulham on the on the Fulham Road. This is again fifteen years ago. I don't know if it's still there. And I was working in the studio. And her restaurant was right behind the corner. And I thought, I've just got to walk by. I've just got to see if she's there. I've just got to see if she's there. So Steve, the guy I was riding with, said, okay, let's go have a look. We walked around. And it was a really sunny day, so I couldn't see inside the window. So I did one of these stupid things where I, like, put my face up against the window like that with my hands. <laughs> <laughs> like, a prop, like a child looking into, like, a pet shop kind of thing. Yeah. Or, like, a candy, a candy store. And I just subtle. saw her see me. Really subtle. Really cool. <laughs> And I just, all I saw was her in an empty restaurant looking at me through the window like this. Anyway, I walked inside to She say must have hello. thought, there he is, there's that cool guy. <laughs> there's that suave oh. Italian guy. Yeah. There he is. All bunched up on the glass. You know, with your breath on the glass, like covering up. Nos nostril breath. Yeah. Sexy. Luck luckily it was hot, so I don't think I got that. But it wasn't very it yeah, it was it was pretty lame. Um but anyway, I, I went to say hello. And then the worst thing of all, she hugged me when I walked in to say hello. And that's that was like that was like an hour in my heart because a girl that likes you doesn't hug you and she says hello. A friend says hello to you. She was just so confident and sort of said hello to me like if, if I was this sort of old chum, this old mate of hers. Really? Do you think that? Because I would hug somebody that I fancied just for the squeeze, just to check they're not, you know, packing some sort of timber that I'm not aware of or <laughs> I don't know. Um. Well, I didn't get that vibe. <laughs> it wasn't one of those yeah. hugs. She wasn't checking anything out. It was like a really okay. like, actually it was almost awkward. Like, oh, it's that weird guy looking through the window. <laughs> like, you know. <laughs> let's get rid of him with a hug. Let's get rid of, <laughs> let's get rid of him. <laughs> exactly. That's kind of what it felt like. Let me just give him a hug and I'll go away. So yeah. I, I, I went off in a sort of, again, in another sulk, was like, oh no. And I said to Steve, I don't think I can ride today, man. I'm a bit down. I'm just going to go home. Anyway, she, in the meantime, had gone, had told her boss she was posting a letter and she went into every studio on that road asking, is Jack here? Is Jack here? Is Jack here? 
And she got back like an hour later. Her boss said, where have you been? You're fired. And then she left. She, she got my number to a friend, left me a voicemail. Um, and I managed to be able to take her for a drink that night at that pub. We met up. And, um, uh. and then we were together for five years. And then that sort of, and then we were on a break, so to speak. And then she didn't talk to me. She was not very... A Ross and Rachel break. We had a Ross and Rachel moment. And uh, she wasn't talking to me. And I managed to convince her to meet me at the Serpentine for a chat. And I proposed. And and um, and that was 10 years ago. We celebrated 10 years last summer. We're celebrating 11 mm. years next week, this weekend. Yeah. Oh, congratulations. And, 11, and why the yeah. Serpentine? The Serpentine? I, I don't know why I chose the Serpentine. Actually, funny I mean, it's, it's, it's classy. It's beautiful. It's, and my wife is a wonderful artist. So I think it was me desperately trying to impress her and yeah. trying to sort of... It wasn't actually in the Serpentine. It was outside. And I'll never forget, she was 40 minutes late. So we, I was supposed to meet. It was like on a Sunday at 12 o'clock. She wasn't talking to me. She said she didn't want to talk to me. And I said, okay, well, in a week, I, like in next Sunday, I'll be at the Serpentine at 12 o'clock. I'd love to, to see you and to talk to you. And at 12.30, she still wasn't there. And this kind of, and I had this ring burning a hole in my pocket. And this Hollywood, this Hollywood sort of movie that I had of getting back the love of my life kind of was shattering slowly, slowly, one piece at a time. And she arrived in a black cab and she got out and, and she basically massacred me for two hours straight. I want a horrible person I am. So this love actually moment really wasn't going to plan. Total annihilation, getting it all off her chest. And I, to the point where I thought, maybe this is a bad idea. Maybe I'm... Maybe I'm uh, and, take the ring back. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if they take, if they take refunds. Uh, no, and then as we were leaving the Serpentine, because um, we were actually leaving, I didn't find the courage to do it then and there because it just didn't feel appropriate after this sort of massacre for two hours. But then as we were leaving... As we were leaving, she just looked magnificent. And we, we, she had one giggle. She did one laugh. I said something and made her laugh again. Because it had been pretty brutal up until then. And the minute I heard that laugh, I was like... I, remembered, I remember always thinking, what's the big deal in films about proposals? It's not... It's terrifying. I couldn't open the ring box. Like, I actually couldn't do it like I, I i remember i always say this to people like you'll never to friends of mine who are going to do it i was like you think you're going to be cool at this it's really it's the hardest like the scariest thing i think i've ever done um and yeah she actually had to open the box because i couldn't do it because my hands were trembling <laughs> yeah. and i take it she said yes straight away or she or, said or she, whis she whispered yes she whispered yes and i always remember it because it was as if she hadn't really made her mind up yet it was like a sort of reflex rather than a thought out decision i think she still kind of sometimes questions she probably should have thought about it a little bit longer <laughs> i think she just saw the ring and said yes like and then she sort of hadn't really contemplated that she was going to be stuck with me for the rest of her life so uh i was lucky that her, her instincts got the better of her. <laughs> oh, I like that. And I like that you still went there after what sounds like a complete character assassination. Complete. Which hasn't stopped for the last... <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> it's, it's pretty continuous. I can safely say she keeps me very grounded. 
Very grounded. <laughs> Very grounded. She must do because you still managed to create a lockdown baby. So, so, so you must still be doing something right with each other. We do. And I mean, my daughter keeps me grounded too. My son keeps me grounded. All these, all these lovely people we keep creating together just keep joining her team of keeping Papa in check uh, and, kind of <laughs> <laughs> and reminding me how mediocre I am and I need to make more like they're properly like they're on they're all on the same team um, <laughs> I can safely say team that. Gemma team Gemma yeah. it's all team Gemma my son is slowly coming over to my side I've noticed I'm really working I'm, I've, I've given up my daughter is yeah she's 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 too tough how old's your daughter She's nine, but she's thirty-nine. She's she's she's, oh, yeah. she's the she's the adult in the family. She's the one looking, yeah. keeping us all in check. Nine going on thirty-nine. Geez, man, yeah. you've got some hard years ahead of you. I know. Yeah. I know. I do. <laughs> I was I was a teenage girl once, and I wouldn't want to meet me. Well, I, well, I, I grew up with my mother and my sister, my, so I, I I I'm kind of. Kind of, well play, kind of, yeah, well, kind of well versed, but I, I know when to, I know when to just, just leave, just go outside, just go, leave the room, walk just, away, walk, walk away. away, yeah, just walk away, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Take the character assassination, <laughs> take it on the chin and walk away. <laughs> Don't whatever you uh, do, do not tell them what you're thinking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Whatever you do. laughs> oh, Jack, it's been a real joy to talk to you today. Yeah, Thank me too. you, me too. and continued success. I mean, to 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 see you um, thriving on album number seven, working with some of the greatest in the business is is a joy to to see. Thank you, Kim. So. Thank you so much, Kim. Um, Thank you. And the album's at twenty fifth of June. Is that right? Yes, 25th of June. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's crazy. That's any day now. So, yeah. You can pre-order it on whatever it is you use for music. Yeah. You can pre-order it there. And that really helps artists, actually. So it's worth it saying does. that to listeners. It, actually, it really it, does make a difference. It, it really does make a big difference, which is why there's so many so many long run-ups to so many albums now, because it, yeah. it really does help. In such a quick world, it actually helps to sort of give it a little bit more substance and, and length by, by doing this. So by all means, if you can, pre-order it. So if you're a big fan um, uh, and you want to check the album out, do pre-order it and and enjoy. You can get your maracas out and have Europe <laughs> in your back garden. This is the only place we're going this summer. Absolutely. <laughs> it's the holiday we can't have in a bottle. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Jack, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. Well, if you're not convinced by that, then... I, I don't know what is going to persuade you to buy a Jack Severati album. He's a lovely man, a raconteur, and so talented. And did I mention hardworking? Uh, Europeana is available to pre-order now and released on June the 25th. As always, the show is produced by me, Kate Thornton, with Libby Knowles and Richard Hatherall for Yahoo UK. Our beats are provided by the legend, the awesome Andy Bell, whose back catalogue with Riding Oasis is available on Spotify and iTunes. I'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.